Words are amazing things. They're essentially sounds, but even written words aren't simply, simply combinations of symbols, are they? I mean, they instantly become sounds in our minds. And these sounds are just packed full of, of meaning. And exactly the same may be said of expressions. Combinations of words, when said together, recall often whole chapters of human history. Let me give you a couple of examples to clarify what I'm, what I'm saying here. If I were to say to you something like the events of 9-11 or following September 11, you would all know what I was referring to, would you not? I mean, there would be no need for me to say to you the events of September 11, 2001 were a series of four coordinated terrorist attacks launched by the Islamic terrorist group Al-Qaeda upon the United States and New York City and Washington DC metropolitan area where almost 3,000 people were killed and at least $10 billion of property and infrastructure were destroyed and then you straight away remember where you were. Don't you? I do. I remember in great detail where I was. I remember Louisa's dad ringing up and saying, turn on the television. I remember seeing that second plane fly into the building live. But you see, all of that wrapped up. For each of us, all of that is wrapped up, isn't it, in 9-11. And the same could be said if I was to say to you something like the Holocaust. The Holocaust was the systematic bureaucratic, state-sponsored persecution and murder of approximately six million Jews by the Nazi regime and its collaborators. Holocaust originally was a, a word of Greek origin meaning sacrifice by fire. But it no longer means just that. It now has a different an almost fuller and very specific meaning because history has changed its meaning. And we no longer really need to define what we mean by the Holocaust, do we? Most adults know exactly what we're talking about. The Great Australian Dream is another example. An expression which is just filled with meaning. Most of us know that typically the, the Great Australian Dream, which was all about the post-war kind of economic boom, we know the great Australian dream is all about having a, your own independent, freestanding dwelling, mostly single storey, on a quarter acre block somewhere in Australia with a hill's hoist and a barbecue out the back. <laughs> Don't we? We all know the great Australian dream. We know what that is. And we could say that about a whole lot of things. Well, today as we move kind of toward chapter 5 of the book of Acts, we're at the back end of chapter 4, we come to a passage of scripture which is just laced with words and expressions which are jam-packed with meaning, meaning we from our 21st century vantage point can easily miss. The trouble is when we no longer hear what the first century writer was referring to, we can end up running the risk of then imposing our own meanings upon those expressions. And whenever we do that, obviously, it's going to be fraught with problems. We've got to remind ourselves of this. Whenever the New Testament 
uses the Old Testament. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, as the previous passage made reference to the Psalms, we had to somehow try to track what was really being said by Luke and the early church as they prayed for courage in the face of persecution. You see, short little quotations may carry with them an entire world view. So having said that, let's open the word of God to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, praying that he would indeed give us eyes and ears which are open to what he would say to us by his spirit today. Acts 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Luke tells us that as the Holy Spirit filled the early church, as God anointed them with himself, they were unified in a way that was really quite extraordinary. And as they lived like that in this very unified way, the preaching of the apostles went forth with great power And much grace was upon them all. He says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now, I want you to take note of the fact that Luke has already, in chapter 2, told us this fact. He's already mentioned that the first Christians living in Jerusalem sold property and distributed their wealth to those who were in need. So why does Luke repeat this point here? What is he adding? What is he really saying to us? Well, I think we need to know that the early Christians were by no means the first Jews, first Jews of their day, to try their hand at communal living. The best-known other example is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You all know about the Dead Sea Scrolls? In the early part of last century, a whole lot of scrolls were found in a cave near the Dead Sea at a place called Qumran. And within these scrolls, which were written in the hundred years before Christ, we have much of the Old Testament and a whole lot of other commentaries on the Old Testament. So you can imagine what that meant for scholars. We're not looking at the Old Testament as it was passed down you know, in the earliest transcripts that we might have in, in, say, 300 AD or 400 or 600, we're, we're actually looking at ones that were written before Christ. So we can say, well, how do, how do they compare? So it's an amazing find. So this community where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they were a community that gathered themselves, formed themselves around a character called the Teacher of Righteousness. Now, this man, this teacher of righteousness, lived in the hundred years before Jesus, 
He seems to have been one of the priests working in the temple. He was probably a candidate for the high priest position, but wasn't, wasn't given that position. And so he left and he gathered around him a group of people. And this teacher claimed, or his followers claimed on his behalf, that through his work, God had established the new covenant spoken of by the prophets of Israel, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And N.T. Wright, a famous New Testament scholar, tells us that scholars all over the world discuss all of this at great length. We won't go into all of that today, but he says this. But the point here is this. In making the claims they did, the group who wrote and studied the scrolls, which I just mentioned, including large chunks of the Old Testament and several other books, saw themselves as the community in which the ancient ideal of Israel as God's covenant people was coming true. So in response to this, the Qumran community, see, they knew the Old Testament. They knew what the Old Testament said and what God was going to do. So in response to that, this Qumran community pooled their possessions. And if somebody wanted to join the group, the first step was, we'll sign over everything you've got. We will hold it in trust. And after a period of time, if you decide you want to join the community, you sign it over for good. So it's not as though the early church was the first one to come up with this idea of pooling resources. You see, woven into these words, we find echoes of the book of Deuteronomy. Woven into these words of our passage today, we find echoes of the book of Deuteronomy, which speaks of what life will be like when God finally establishes his people. In Deuteronomy 15, remember this is just after God has brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. God commanded that, get this, every seven years, there was required to be a remission of debts. Everyone who was owed money was to cancel the claim. Literally, they were to cancel the debt. Have a look. At, this, is, this is God's law. Deuteronomy 15 verse 1 says, At the end of every seven years, seven years comes around pretty regularly, doesn't it? At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother because the Lord's time for cancelling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your brother owes you. However, there should be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance. He will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised and you will lend to many nations but borrow from none. You will rule over many nations but none will rule over you. Do you see verse 4? There should be no poor among you. Now as we look carefully at this Old Testament passage of the law, I think we begin to see what Luke is up to in Acts chapter 4. You see, this passage from Deuteronomy was central to the hopes of Israel. When they heard an expression like, 
no poor among you. It evoked in them a whole raft of images central to the mind of Israel. There'd be no poor among you. But now in the book of Acts, see Luke is making the startling, controversial claim that this relatively small little group of people who identified themselves with this Jesus of Nazareth were in effect the true covenant people of God who he had always intended to establish. In essence, Luke is saying the church is the new Israel. The church is the covenant community which will, through Christ, inherit all that was foretold, all that was promised for God's people. And how had that been achieved? Well, it had been achieved by the complete and total forgiveness of sins achieved by Jesus in his death. You see, all debts were now cancelled through Christ. You may remember that Jesus, at the very start of his earthly ministry, when he read from the scroll at the synagogue, In Nazareth, he read from Isaiah 61. Now, the Gospel of Luke, remember, Luke is also the author of Acts. The Gospel of Luke says that after being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and nights, he went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then the Lord rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you get that? Do you see that? Jesus came to fulfill the promises of Deuteronomy 15. He came to cancel the debt of sin and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And now his followers, his people, those who were in Christ, in the most practical, everyday kind of way possible, were making God's ancient promises of covenant renewal live. They would not hold on to their possessions, living from a a worldview of scarcity of blessing any longer. They knew Christ had turned everything upside down and that he would provide all of their physical needs just as he has provided all of their spiritual needs. They were indeed God's true covenant community. And they were going to live as God's covenant community and that meant there would no longer be anyone in need in their community. Now I want you to notice that this did not mean that they simply sold everything. I mean, clearly, they did not turn every asset they owned into cash. And they did not sell the roofs over their heads either. I mean, that would have meant that they would have had nowhere to live, nowhere to meet, and before long, they themselves would have been in great need. 
I mean, later in Acts, as the Apostle Paul travelled the world sharing about Jesus, he assumed that people still had houses to live and eat in. But Paul made it very clear that our response to the love of God in Christ was to result in the sharing of our God-given wealth with others. And that it was unacceptable for some to live within the community with more than enough whilst others lived in poverty. Let me ask you, do you think unity of heart and mind, or actually a more accurate translation is unity of heart and soul? That the Greek word is that part of us that goes on forever. Do you think unity of heart and soul matters today? Does it matter to you? I mean, does this matter? And by this, I mean this gathering of Christ followers who call themselves Lakes Baptist Church Gorakin, does this matter? Or is this just one of many options for you? I mean, on, you know, on a Sunday, there's lots of things. I mean, I could go to the movies, I could go to the beach, I could go to Bunnings. I could just go and have a... A sanger up at Bunnings. Or I could go to church. Oh, I wonder which church I'll go to today. I'll see you next Sunday. Subject to better offer. Yeah, I'm committed. Subject to better offer. I mean, does your commitment to these brothers and sisters in Christ seated around about you really matter? And if so, does it actually reflect your commitment to Christ? You know, somebody said to me years ago, and this had such a big impact on me, they said, a measure of your maturity in Christ, like the vertical relationship, is your relationships with your brothers and sisters. That this is kind of equal to this. These are tough questions. They really are. And let me ask you this. Deep within you, where only you and God really know what's going on, let me ask you, does it concern you if there are some here amongst us who are really struggling? And I don't mean just financially. They may be struggling relationally. Struggling to make and keep friends. You know, we're, a, we're all the sum of our yesterdays, aren't we? And what I've found is people who are bullied and beaten up for long enough no longer find it easy to trust people. And that means they find it hard to make friends. They may have money... They may not be struggling financially, but they struggle relationally. They may be struggling to cope after a failed marriage or, or a breakdown of a relationship within a family, a breakdown between mother and daughter or father and son or brother and sister. They may be struggling to cope emotionally, struggling to cope after the loss of a loved one or the the impending loss of a loved one due to a serious illness. 
Maybe they're struggling emotionally because they've come to realise there are certain dreams that they've held for years and years and now they've come to the realisation that that dream is never going to come true for me. And there's nothing I can do about it. And that is difficult to cope with. They may be spiritually impoverished simply because they are new to the faith. They may be spiritually impoverished because they are the first believer in their whole extended family for generations. And they haven't had three or four generations of Christian input as you've had. And they're struggling spiritually simply because they're young. They're young in the faith and they just need help in maturing in their walk with the Lord. There are some who struggle intellectually. The reality for them is they just cannot cope with complex things quickly. And they just struggle. And then there are others who are financially in need. Yet in the midst of all of this, you come to realise that by the grace of God, you are not. You are not. You are not in need as others are in need. And maybe it has never occurred to you that the thing you are most able to give is your friendship or your lack of judgment when another fails morally or your patience with someone who is a little slower to learn than you are. Maybe you have lots to give but you're simply not even thinking about it. You're not thinking about the covenant community of God in your midst because, well, hey, what really matters is that I'm okay. And life's sweet and, well, I'm not in need. Do you think it matters that God's desire, as clearly stated in Scripture, is that within his family, within his people, there would be no one in need? That's what the law said in Deuteronomy. That's what the prophets foretold. When Jesus started his ministry, that's what he said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to form a community where no one is in need in any way. Let me tell you, I think it matters a lot. I really do. I think it matters a lot. I think hidden within these few short verses is a glimpse of heaven. I think this is the very heart of God. This is what it means to reflect the image of God, to be like him in everything we do and everything we are. Now, I did not ask Tina to pray that prayer, did I? But Tina prayed, we call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's actually the disciples' prayer isn't it? Because the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. 
And he, he said those words. And what did he say there about your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. That's powerful, isn't it? That what this is about is the early church began to get a glimpse and we need to also get a glimpse that the way we live now should not be that we are looking forward to what it's going to be like when the kingdom of God is fully consummated after we have died, when we go to be with the Lord. The idea is that we bring that to earth now and we live as God's people under a new rule the rule of Jesus King Jesus so I think it matters a lot see this is what it means to reflect the image of God to be like him in everything we do and everything we are I mean you may not have a block of land to sell as Barnabas did in the first century but maybe you have something else to give that could completely transform another's life. And that something may simply be your presence. Now that's something my mentor John Reed said to us when he was lecturing at college years ago. And he said sometimes, talking about pastoral care, and he's just saying sometimes the best thing you can give someone, often the best thing you can give them is simply your presence. And that doesn't mean that when you're talking to them, you're checking your phone or you're glancing around for someone else. It means being present to them in the moment. Sometimes that is the very best thing we can give someone. You know, I was trying to think of a good example of this kind of life. And he's going to hate me for saying this. I'm sorry. But the person I thought of was Jim McNabb. Sorry, Jim. But I thought to myself, now I might be wrong, but I'm kind of assuming Jim doesn't have a mountain of money somewhere. Jim's probably not going to sell one of his investment properties. But what he does have is he has a lifetime of building things and fixing, fixing things and kind of knowing how stuff works. And Jim spends his time working out who's in need, doesn't he? And making sure that no one is in need in our community. Well, I think that's a good example, isn't it, of what this is about. That we may not have the block of land as Barnabas had, but we all have something we can give to ensure that no one in our community is in need. I think this is the kind of life the Word of God is calling us to. Let me tell you something also that I discovered during this last week. As I said earlier, we've got our church business meeting coming up later this afternoon, and we've got our church budget. And so, of course, we're looking at all of the figures and stuff, and I ask myself the question, because, you see, there's lots of ways to measure church growth, isn't there? I mean, we can just count kind of bums on seats and say, is that what this is all about? Just getting more people sitting here. But there are lots of other ways to measure whether a group of people are growing in maturity in Christ. And one of those ways, 
I think, particularly looking at a passage like this, is are we more generous? You know, we have all the data going back to 15 years where we, can, we know how many people were at every service and, you know, we can look, look at the attendance, but we also know exactly how much was given. And if I said to you, we are giving much more today per person than we were 15 years ago, all the economists in the room are going to say, yeah, that's because of inflation. Is that right, Peter? It is, isn't it? All the business people are going to say, yeah, of course we are, because money's worth less because of inflation. But you know what? The Reserve Bank of Australia has a wonderful tool where you can go onto their website and you can put in an amount of money and the year, and because it knows what the inflation rate has been each year, it works out with a very complicated calculation exactly what that money in the year 2000 is worth today. So I went through every year and I, worked and I plotted it all. Get this. The average person at Lakes today as opposed to 15 years ago, is giving twice what they used to give in inflation-adjusted figures. I think that is wonderful. We may not have as many people. We may not have, you know, heaps and heaps of cash. Forget all that and just say, are we growing in the grace of giving? Yes. It's something that we've felt, the leaders have felt, at a gut level for a long time. But I've got the actual data to show it. I think that's exciting. It really is. But the thing is, as we struggle to come to terms with these issues, we need to reflect on the whole testimony of Scripture, don't we? And in doing that, we see that it wasn't long before Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, warning about the danger of people sponging off the community when they were more than capable of earning their own living. Have a look at what he wrote to the Thessalonians. For he said, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. Clearly, this is only going to be a problem, isn't it? In a community where the sharing of wealth was a foundational principle. But it does highlight that there is always going to be some who will just want to sponge off the generosity of others. They're going to walk through life with nothing more than a welfare mentality, believing that society owes them a living. Within the family of God, Paul makes it very clear, that is unacceptable. See, that's the flip side of this, isn't it? What we do with money and possessions declares boldly, it declares loudly to the world what sort of community we are. The message of the early church left no doubt about who they were. They were the covenant community of the living God where none were in need. Is it any wonder they were growing at an astounding rate? Is it any wonder they were able to give such powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus? The early church were demonstrating that it was a reality in ways that many Christians today can only dream of. 
Wouldn't it be wonderful if it could be said of our covenant community, Lakes Baptist Church, there were none in their midst in need? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If the expression... You know, I talked at the beginning about expressions and about how they're packed with meaning. Wouldn't it be wonderful if when people heard that expression, Lakes Baptist Church, they straight away thought, there are no one, there's no one in need. There are none in need in that community. But having said that, let me also say, I pray that we would never turn from the Lord's command to take the good news to all the earth and that we would become inward looking and that we would not have our arms open to the wider community. That we would ever become like this. I remember going on a mission trip down to a church down south with with college. A whole lot of us came to this, this little country church and we'd been with them for three days and on the Sunday night, after church, just without planning it, the whole little church community formed a circle just around supper. And they sat there telling stories from within the community, within their community, you know, in-jokes and stuff. And I watched, and the six or eight of us from college had our cup of tea, and we're standing there, and we were outside the circle. And as we tried to move into the circle, instinctively they packed in closer. Like this. It was quite amazing to watch the body language. And it's interesting to kind of follow that church over the following probably 10 or 15 years that they've continued to have problems and never really grown. You see, it was this kind of... Yeah, and there's no one in need because we've got this tight little circle. We've got to be so careful, don't we? That we hear what the Word of God is saying to us, but we take the whole of Scripture and we say, no, we've got to move from this to this. That we're always welcoming. But you know, the reality is, it's very easy to say, making sure that none in our community is in need. Trouble is, that becomes almost an abstract idea. Because it is so hard to actually do that, isn't it? In reality, it is so hard to make sure that no one in the streets around us is in need. Because the reality is, many of those people don't want anything to do with us. But it is possible when people come in the door. It is possible when they come to Nostosh, isn't it? It is possible when we have some interaction with them. And I think that's where it kind of changes from being an abstract idea that's a nice idea but a bit kind of, what do they call it, motherhood statement? Bit of a politician kind of thing, isn't it? But within a church family, it's where the rubber meets the road and we really can because we're in relationship. We're rubbing up against each other. We know each other. We can be present to each other in a very real way. Let's pray. What a challenge, Lord, from your word. I know I found it very challenging. 
Lord, I pray that we would be people who would have open arms, that we would not pack in together. We would always have open arms. We would always be seeking for an opportunity to welcome another into the family of God. Lord, I pray that we would also see those within our midst in need. We would not see this passage as some kind of ideal that is just unattainable and that we would actually commit to living like this and that we would pour our energies into ensuring that there are none in our midst in need. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the reality of what you have done for us in cancelling the debt of sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.